Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to Part 14 of Discovering the Old Testament, where we will talk about what is certainly the most important event in the history of Judaism. It's not an exaggeration to say that the history of Judaism starts with the Exodus, and particularly with the Sinai Theophany. So we have a lot of ground to cover. Let's get started. I'd like to begin with the figure whom the Bible credits with starting all this, and that is Moses. There's a great deal of speculation about whether the persona of Moses in the Bible is a reflection of a real individual. Was there a historical Moses? Scholars have gone back and forth on this issue for a long time. As we often see, there is a school of thought that holds that since we don't have any direct archaeological evidence for Moses, such as an inscription that mentions him, or his confirmed burial site, or other evidence, he must be relegated to the status of a mythical person. More remarkable is the idea that Moses was invented like some Madison Avenue mascot around which later leaders could wrap the narrative of the Israelite nation. I've never found this idea convincing for the simple reason that it is far, far easier to start with a real person who had a real impact and left behind actual followers and disciples who could then carry on the memory of the leader. As history proceeds, more and more accomplishments are credited to him. A comparable example is the Greek mathematician Pythagoras, who was a historical character. However, if he actually did everything that is ascribed to him, he'd probably still be alive. But what about the lack of evidence? As we learned in a previous podcast, lack of evidence doesn't mean something didn't exist. It just means that we don't know. However, in this case, one has to acknowledge a vital piece of evidence, and that is the vast cultural imprint that Moses has had on Jewish culture, and has had for thousands of years. To my mind, that constitutes evidence, although it is of a less quantifiable nature, and thus unsatisfying on a certain level. Even so, we have to look carefully at just what we can say about this remarkable period in Israelite history, where before we have a collection of clans and tribes, someone or something welded them into a nation with an extremely robust national identity. Just as noteworthy is that this same entity managed to bring all these tribes under the worship of a single god, Jehovah, during a time when monotheism was at best a highly experimental theological construct. We talked last time about the Hyksos period in Egypt, when the northern portion of the Nile Valley was ruled by a coalition of Asiatic and Semite peoples, and the possibility that this was the time when the Israelites entered Egypt. One problem with this theory is that we don't have any evidence of Israelites in Egypt. Slaves from the region in and around Palestine were always part of Egyptian society before and after the time of the Hyksos. There's no record of a mass exodus or of any charismatic leader who led them out or compelled their release from a reluctant pharaoh. 
More troubling from the standpoint of the biblical narrative is evidence showing that people whose material culture looks a lot like the Israelites were part of the picture in Palestine throughout the time ascribed to the Egyptian captivity. One interpretation of this picture is that the Israelite tribes never left to go down and settle in the land of Goshen in Egypt. But this assumes that the tribes acted as a unified group, and it's pretty safe to say that they didn't. Different factions, families, and splinter groups each went their own way as suited them best. There is no reason why a group of Israelites could not have found themselves in Egypt and later found their way out again. It's simply that the evidence we have does not point to the Cecil B. DeMille version with the cast of hundreds of thousands. The time of the oppression of the Israelites would correspond very roughly to the period following the expulsion of the Hyksos in around 1550 BCE. Egyptians being deeply ethnocentric, their hatred for the foreign rulers is almost palpable. Apparently, they didn't like to talk about it much, but we have enough to know that any Semites left behind would not have had it easy. Even if we don't have evidence of Israelite slaves in Egypt, there is pretty clear evidence of an oppressive environment for foreigners. There are two periods generally given as the most likely for the events associated with the Exodus. One is between 1450 and 1350 BCE, and the second is between 1300 and 1250 BCE. Most scholars favor the latter date, but there are complications as usual. Some Egyptian diplomatic correspondents found at the site of Tel el Amarna come from the earlier period and mention tribes of Apiru, which many scholars think may be a variant of the word Hebrew. This puts Hebrews in Palestine by 1350. Given that the persecution of the Semites in Egypt would have started after the defeat of the Hyksos in 1550, that fits that chronology pretty well. In addition to this, we have evidence of Semitic slaves who worked an Egyptian turquoise mine at Sarabit el Kadem and left graffiti carved all over the surrounding rocks. None of this material is explicitly Israelite, however. Then there is the Bible itself. 1 Kings 6 verse 1 states that Solomon dedicated the temple 480 years after the exodus from Egypt. The generally accepted date for Solomon's temple is around 950 BCE, which puts the exodus at about 1430 BCE. Evidence for the later date also uses biblical evidence. Exodus chapter 1 refers to the Israelite role in building the cities of Ramses and Pithom. These sites have not been positively located, but records do exist listing these two cities as building projects started by Seti I and Ramses I, the founders of the 19th dynasty, around 1300 BCE. Alongside this is an inscription known as the Merneptah Stele, which was set up by Merneptah, the son of Ramses II. It records a series of victories by the Egyptian army over various Canaanite tribes in Palestine as part of an effort to pacify this part of the Egyptian sphere of influence. Among the victories is the mention of Israel, 
Israel is laid waste, his seed is not, the text reads, which probably means that the Egyptians won a minor tussle and drove the Israelites into the hills temporarily. The date of this stele is securely set at about 1212 BCE. One interesting note is that the name Israel on the Merneptah stele uses a sign that refers to a clan or a tribe rather than a nation, which would indicate that the Israelites were not yet fully settled. Using the recent dates for the Exodus is consistent with a date sometime before 1275, but after 1300, and supports the idea that Ramses II was, in fact, the pharaoh of the oppression. Exodus describes this contest of wills between Moses and Pharaoh as a series of miraculous events, the famous plagues of Egypt. But what is not clear to modern readers is that these miracles took place under very strict constraints imposed by the monotheistic outlook, almost certainly added by later authors. One of the problems with polytheism is that the gods are not and cannot be sovereign. Polytheistic systems in the ancient Near East assumed a transcendent magical substratum through which the gods operated or could be compelled to act. Humans could access this power, assuming they had the know-how, and exert compulsion even over the gods themselves. In fact, it's fair to say that much of the pagan religion involves an attempted control and manipulation of that magical power. This kind of thinking was anathema to monotheism. No human magician could rival God, let alone compel him, and to presume to do so was totally unacceptable. And yet, Moses finds himself placed in a situation where he must engage the Pharaoh and his court in what amounts to a magical contest. Magical thinking was prevalent in the ancient world, but it was more systematic than we assume. All other elements being in place, magical acts almost universally consisted of two parts. The first was a spoken incantation or command, and the second was some kind of nonverbal gesture. These two elements are found in pretty much every magical act from this area, whether we are talking about acts in the Bible or extra-biblical material such as incantation texts or literature in which magic plays some role. The case of the pagan general Naaman, the leper, is a perfect example. He is angry because he expected to see magic done the way he was used to seeing it. 2 Kings 5, verse 11. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Elisha acts the way he does because he wants to make absolutely clear that this is not pagan magic. 
and that the credit for the healing goes to God. No incantations, and the action or gesture is very plain, very ordinary. Moses is faced with the same problem. He must represent God, but do so in a way that complies with the monotheistic worldview and does not allow even a hint that the miraculous events have anything to do with God's human agents. When Moses invokes the plagues, starting in Exodus 8 and following, he performs in complete silence, not saying a word. Not only does he invoke the plagues without speech, on four occasions, when Pharaoh asks Moses to withdraw one of the plagues, Moses leaves Pharaoh's presence and prays alone for an end to the plague. As before, the intent is to ensure that he cannot be mistaken for a pagan magician. Moses is not the one who acts. He is simply the agent working on God's behalf. What is also remarkable about how Moses conducts these miracles is that what does get said is not an incantation, but a statement of what is about to happen. The distinction would be very clear to someone from that time, and it gives us further insight into the nature of why these events were considered miraculous. The kinds of plagues we read about, the frogs, the locusts, the polluting of the Nile, and all these things, most of them had happened before, and there are records of such events that have survived to this day. It wasn't the plague that was noteworthy. It was that the plagues began and ended on command. It was the uncanny ability of Moses' God to declare exactly what would happen and when, all in advance, precluding any later claims of coincidence. What the Torah is doing here is spelling out an entirely new paradigm for the religious figure. It is replacing the magician with the prophet, which is a necessary innovation in the wake of the absolute monotheism that the Torah describes and demands. In his speech to the Israelites just before they cross into the Promised Land, Moses clarifies this distinction in Deuteronomy 18, verses 14 and 15. It reads, Although these nations that you are about to dispossess do give heed to soothsayers and diviners, as for you, the Lord your God does not permit you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, like me, from among your own people, and you shall heed such a prophet. This is not to say that wonder-working was no longer part of the prophet's job description. Elijah, in particular, appears as a kind of Moses 2.0, in much the same way these verses describe, but the miraculous events that attend prophethood start to fade away as we get into later and later times. The later prophets that started around the 9th and 8th centuries BCE do not make use of this kind of miracle working, but do ascribe all wonders to God. The book of Chronicles, recording the same events found in Kings, removes all wonder-working powers from their version of the prophets. But let's return to the Exodus itself. The idea of going out in search of something better is one of the great themes of Western art and culture, infusing itself into our own interpretation of historical events. 
The defining moment of the Exodus is, of course, the crossing of the Red Sea. So it will come as a surprise that the Hebrew text makes no mention of the Red Sea at all. The term only shows up in the later Greek translations. What the Hebrew does mention is the Sea of Reeds, or Yam Suf, which suggests a much shallower marshy area, perhaps Lake Timsa or Lake Serbonis, which lie much further to the north near the Suez Canal. A combination of weather and tidal conditions sometimes allow for a window of a few hours in which one can cross the marshland, after which the waters return and make the way impassable. But if this is the origin of the dramatic crossing of the sea, it still fits very neatly with how God handled the plagues. It was not the plagues that constituted the miracle, it was the timing. However, our theme of Exodus here is incomplete. It is not enough to leave a place. One must head for another, especially if leaving Egypt lands you in the trackless wastes of the Sinai. The survival of the Israelites in the desert was a prelude to what might be considered an even larger achievement, the conquest of a populated land by a ragtag band of desert-dwelling former slaves. The conquest described in the Bible is rapid, decisive, bloody, relentless, and utterly unlike anything that we find in the archaeological record. As we learned in an earlier episode, according to the archaeological evidence, no one was living in Jericho during the time usually ascribed to the conquest. We also know that there were people related to the Israelites who never left the area, but who may have joined with the newcomers to exert their influence politically and economically. Several theories have attempted to explain this anomaly. One proposes a series of peaceful immigrations over a long period of time. Another goes so far as to state that the Exodus is entirely mythical and theological, and never actually took place. No Israelite slaves in Egypt, no Moses. As I've stated, I find this theory unsatisfactory for many reasons. The narratives that describe it are perhaps militant in their character because of the nature of the monotheistic revolution that was the context of the early portions of the Torah. But we cannot leave this subject without some discussion of Sinai. The law-giving at Sinai, the cementing of the covenant between God and his people, is where Israel is literally created, in both a national and a cosmic sense. For better or worse, God and his people are stuck with each other. The covenant, as we mentioned in part three of this series, is the basis of the relationship between God and the Israelites. I encourage you to go back and listen to part three if you haven't already done so, as we talk about covenants there in more depth. Sinai becomes the prototype for every holy place in Israel, including the temple, especially the temple. The services there were intended to keep fresh the cosmic bond that not only held the Israelites within the protective power of God, but in a very real sense held the cosmos in place. The Exodus theme emerges throughout the Bible. Whenever Israelites find themselves in difficulty, it's often just a matter of time before some lesson of the Exodus asserts itself. 
whether it is the conviction that God will help those who trust him, or when God reminds the Israelites to treat foreigners kindly, for you were once slaves in Egypt. It is the ultimate metaphor of change and transformation, but one in which we are obligated to remember whence we came, as well as where we are going. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Thank you.